My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, we're getting into the space of high performance. How can you give more energy to others? How can you increase your mental agility? How can you adapt to disruption? How can you lead with impact? Chris Mayles is Managing Director and former Head of Performance Coaching at Tignum, the world-leading sustainable high-performance development firm. A former athlete, Chris is also himself a sought-after speaker and high-performance coach, and in the last five years alone has presented in over 20 countries and coached over 500 senior leaders from leading organizations such as Novartis, Unilever, and the U.S. Special Forces. He is a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Group of World Leading Coaches. As an Australian, he naturally loves all things outdoors and views this as an integral part of his personal recovery time, especially after averaging 100 flights per year for five years in a row. Chris currently resides in La Jolla, California, with his wife, son, and an energetic Hungarian Vizsla. I can't wait to hear more about his journey and life lessons, and of course, the unlock moments of remarkable clarity he experienced along the way. Chris Mayles, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the unlock moment. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Gary. And, and I need to update my bio, obviously, because we've actually just had an addition as well. I now have a six-month-old daughter, and um, I don't know if I sound a little bit tired on the call. That's probably one of the reasons why. Well, congratulations from me and all of our listeners. So where do we need to start in understanding about the life and career journey that brings you to where you are today? Take us back. Yeah, look, I think I got into this industry, this kind of peak performance, high sustainable high performance industry, um, very naturally. I was a, uh, a, a, I guess, a, a, like every Australian kid, desiring to play at the highest level um, of cricket in Australia. It's, a, it's something that none of my kind of participants understand in the US. It gets me no street cred when I say that I played at a higher level of cricket. Um, but I guess when I, when I look back on that course, I kind of tried to apply myself as an athlete for many, many years, frustratingly so. You know, I, I think I, I achieved um, certain levels that were probably the ceiling for me, and that was quite early in my career. But I very quickly pivoted to thinking, how could I use these skills that I've learned as an athlete, but then also in the world of sports science, that's what I did at college, at university, how could I use it in a very different environment? And executive high performance, coaching, uh, these sorts of things was just a natural transition uh, for me. It's really interesting. A lot of people that have listened to this podcast for a while will know about my background in ballroom dancing. And I often talk about what makes ballroom dancing particularly interesting as a sport is there's almost no money in it. So even the best in the world are paying out, you know, tens of thousands of pounds a year to fuel their sport, traveling around the world, doing their coaching, doing their training. 
And what you get from that is incredibly competitive people because they're not doing it for the fame or for the money. They're doing it purely to win. Does that resonate with the world you trained in? Or did you see at the highest level there is a sort of fame and money part to it as well? No, look, it definitely does. Back in my day when I was playing, it was, you know, I, I guess at the turn of the, uh, turn of the century, you know, the year 2000, around that time, great time to be alive in Australia with the, with the Olympics and those sorts of things. Um, but the money was very small. Uh, so while I was trying to uh, play and trying to kind of hone my craft as a player, I also had started a business in corporate health assessments and those sorts of things because the money wasn't high enough. But to your point, you were around a group of people that weren't doing it for their career. They weren't doing it for money. That has changed with the India, Indian Premier League and those sorts of things. There's lots of money in the game now. Uh, but you were around people that were extremely competitive and wanted to really have the biggest impact on the sport possible. They wanted to actualize their talent. You know, I see a lot of talented executives that are often driving around on two flat tires. And if they had the right kind of nearly sports science principles, I would call it executive performance science. Um, if they had those to support, with, to support them, they'd probably be a lot more sustainable. If I think to the people that I've been alongside who've worked harder than anybody else in, in what they do, it's the people in the sports world more than people in the business world. I mean, there's people in the business world who work incredibly hard, but there's just something about the slight obsession of people who want to be the best in the world at what they do that you see quite rarely in the business world. You see it sometimes, but there's an awful lot of people who you ne never know who they were walking down the street. And yet, you know, you go into the, in my case, a dance studio or you probably in the gym or somewhere, and you see the person that's still there at one o'clock in the morning, knowing that their competitor's not there at one o'clock in the morning. And there's a mindset, there's a mindset in that. Oh, for sure. You know, I don't know if you've read the book Open by Andre Agassi, but he talks about getting up and, doing the sand hills, you know, running sand dunes on Christmas Day. Did that make him any fitter than the 24th or the 26th of December? Absolutely not. But it was a psychological edge that he got from doing something that no one else was on that particular day. And, you know, the placebo effect is still the strongest pharmacological effect there is. So a lot of the times we need to position strategies and tools that we use in our world of sustainable human performance as just that thing, as something that gives me an edge, because right now the world is hard, right? We're living in a world that's constantly changing, lots of extreme circumstances, uncertainty, disruption, geopolitical risk, whatever. It's very easy to feel out of control. It's very easy to feel scattered and overwhelmed and brain fogged. So I think having a performance foundation, which is actually, by the way, what Tignum means, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. It's basically Latin for the word beam providing you a foundation for that next level. Without that foundation, it's pretty hard. And when was the moment when you turned your focus from sport, your own sport, into applying some of those principles and sports science into helping executives with high performance? It was probably, I, I could lie and say that it was from my choosing, but when I think back, it was probably chosen for me. It, it was when I started to get asked to come along on the different cricket tours the different uh, games that we were traveling to as a performance coach and not as a player. I think it was made pretty clear that my playing days were kind of starting to lessen, um, but they wanted me involved because I understood what it, what it took for that team to operate at their best. So I quickly went from athlete to performance coach 
And that, I guess, was when the writing was on the wall. And I, I ended up retiring from cricket, you know, mid-20s. And there are coaches in the business world, and there's some similarities and some differences. How do you view the transferability of the coach mindset in sport to the coach mindset in business? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I, I guess in the coaching community, you mentioned the Marshall Goldsmith uh, 100 coaches. A lot of those coaches are very different to the coaching that I do. So when a listener hears that I've coached over 500 executives, if they only really know the coaching that a one-to-one executive coach does, they would probably think that that's a lie. Um, really, well, the kind of coaching that we do is you know, small, short-duration coaching, maybe 30 minutes of reaching out to a client, seeing how they're implementing the strategies that Tignum has taught them in, the, in most likely a workshop. So it might be a one-and-a-half-day one leadership workshop where we onboard them to the different sustainable human performance strategies. And then we have maybe three months of that one-to-one performance specialist support. Maybe that's even a better word than coaching. So it's very similar to what I did in the sporting days where we had the athlete centered in the model of a team of performance experts, whether it's a physiotherapist, whether it's a psychologist, whether it's a nutritionist, whether it's a technical biomechanical coach. Um, You know, we kind of nearly treat our executives with that kind of model. So tell me more about Tignum, where it came from and what it's doing, what its model is. Yeah, great. So so Tignum is, uh, was set up by our two co-founders, Yogi Ripple. Uh, he's our CEO and he works out of our, our German headquarters and Scott Pelton. Uh, Scott Pelton was a, a Phoenix Fire Battalion chief and, and basically they met and took, started Tignum with the idea that this was a lever that was being missed. You know, the energy of an executive to show up and energize their team, to multiply their energy to their team, be able to build belief for those people um, that they work with, to be able to have their own sustainable high performance strategies in in place so that they can show up and be their best at the moments that matter. They were both kind of on this same path, and that's why they started the company. Um, They started the company in 2005. I came in in 2014. And as you mentioned, I was the global head of our team of coaches. We have about 20 different coaches. Uh, spread across the globe, delivering our workshops and our programs and and coaching the executives that we work with. And then more recently, that role has changed, as you mentioned, to being uh, managing director of the Americas and APAC. And so if you're a client coming into Tignum, what is it that you're offering them? Yeah. So again, if we come back and we think that the world is very uncertain and that the world is challenging, we like to partner with our clients to really redefine what it means to be human but still win, you know, still accomplish your bold projects. We work with companies, we work with teams that often have a real bold project. It might be a new drug that they're launching. It might be a new product. It could be a merger or an acquisition that they're going through. And that's clearly a bold project. But the risk of that bold project not going ahead, not being won, that kind of beta risk, which the financial world talks about, right, the the risk beta, is often really high if our people are sinking, even if they're floating. Like, how do we actually help our people thrive and have their personal readiness to make an impact in those moments be at a multiple of 1.2 rather than 0.8, which we see all the time? We see people that are really struggling to kind of be at their best right now. And I'd like to think that Tigum helps them be at their best and maybe even stretch themselves, stretch their sustainable, high human performance a little bit more. And if I can just finish one, one thought on that, Through the pandemic, I think, and maybe kind of hanging over from the pandemic, I think we were led to believe that we needed to be 
more human, more compassionate, more caring, and we definitely do. But somewhere along the line, we confuse that with not having the business results, that we wouldn't be as successful, that we wouldn't be pushing as hard. Tignan wants to challenge that. We, totally, we completely disagree. And that's why this idea of like, how do we redefine what it means to be human, be more compassionate, be more comparing, be more empathetic as a leader, be more present, be more focused, be more mentally agile. But you can still win. You can still accomplish bold projects. In coaching, in coaching, coaching, so executive coaching, the coachee needs to, it comes from them. They need to want to be there. They need to see the benefit from doing it. Does the process that you're running work only if the person is going, I realize, I recognize that I need this? Or can you take people that feel at the 0.8 and you can, you can bring them to a place where they can see that there's a 1.2 they can go for? Yeah, great, great question. I think a lot of the time we're working with a very motivated population that know that they could be better than the status quo that they're, they're in, right? But behavioral change is hard. You know, you would know this and, and every listener would know this. So how do we actually help that person realize that small things done really well, done often, small little things that they've probably even done in isolation, but maybe even without knowing the performance benefit, could add up to them showing up at their most important events, maybe 5 to 10% sharper. <clears throat> now, if they were 5 to 10% sharper at those critical moments, I think they'd probably find that they would drive a lot more impact, that they would be a lot more successful, and that behavioural change would be a little bit more effortless as well. So in your world, the moments really matter. It's specific times when it, oh, for sure. when it matters. So bring that to life more. Yeah. I guess when you, when you look at Tingham from a distance, even if you go to our uh, website or if you listen to a thoughtcast of ours, you'll hear us talk about these performance strategies. Often they're from the science, the performance sciences of mindset, nutrition, movement, recovery. But what I will say is often it gets confused for being a well-being message, which we're not. We're a performance company. We're not a well-being company. And this is how it differs. Sustainable human performance puts well-being on a spectrum. Let's imagine that that's down the left-hand side. The high-performance critical moments is down the right-hand side. You know, how do you show up at those moments that really matter and drive impact, just like that athlete would on a game day, just like you would when you hit the dance floor? You know, that moment that really matters, those performance moments. Now, the well-being message implies that you and I get together, we change our behaviours, which is hard, as I mentioned. In five years or ten years down the track, we may or may not get a condition that we may or may not have got anyway. That's not very motivating for very busy people, right? For the executives that we work with, they're more motivated, sometimes only motivated, by what's in it for me today. How can I be better in this meeting? How can I be better at that town hall? How can I be better at that one-on-one? -on -one? How can I make that sale at 3 p.m.? So when you focus on the critical moments, the peak performances in someone's calendar, they're more motivated to change their behaviours to win those moments and guess what comes along for the ride? They become healthier, their well-being improves, but it was never Tignum's goal. So many people see us and, you know, come up to myself or one of our other coaches, you know, in an airport, say, Chris, you know, you totally changed my life five years ago. I was in one of your sessions and I've, you know, done this and this and this. And they often talk about their health benefits, but often I'll ask them, you know, tell me about the benefits in your critical moments. Let's focus on those. It's really interesting that there's, there's a whole thing about in, in coaching, do you or don't you bring physical health and physical wellness into what people are doing? And of course, coming 
from the sports world, it is just integral to what you're what you do that you're mindful of your you know your weight and your muscle mass and your stamina and all those kinds of things. What's your perspective on the importance of optimizing or improving your physical wellness in order to deliver the mindset shifts that you're also looking for? Yeah, so it definitely has a place. So don't get me wrong, right? So, so we want to make sure that we are avoiding energy leaks. Right? We see a lot right now that there are clear energy and productivity leaks. Um, people are suffering from fatigue, as I mentioned, physical, cognitive, and emotional fatigue. Those types of fatigue show up very differently in the body. So we need different strategies to, to you know, approach them. Um, we also want to build a performance resilience. You know, when I add the word performance before resilience, because bouncing back is one thing, but actually getting stronger through the load and the stress and the high intensity, the chaos, the disruption is another thing. Um, we want to improve executional stamina to be able to manage your own core work, but also to be able to have the mental agility to to see around corners as a leader, um, to anticipate problems, to rapidly reprioritize when needed. So all those well-being things that you mentioned have a place in reducing the energy leaks. But more importantly for us is like, what are the gains to be had? What are the gains that are off, often missed? You know, I know that out of our population, the executive population, only 3% of people that we study are showing up with a really clear and uncluttered mind for each of their key moments. They're leaving performance to chance. They're leaving it to luck. And I just think in this kind of world, that's not good enough. Um, also, like they have, they lack, I should say, strategies to transition, whether it be from meeting to meeting or from work to home, home to work. So those strategies, that's what I mean by that. They're not well-being strategies. They're actually performance strategies. If I'm choosing to rehydrate, uh, to move uh, after I get off a long flight, Am I getting a well-being benefit from maybe getting closer to 10,000 steps? Yes, but that's not of interest to us. What's of interest to us is you reoxygenating a brain that's been sedentary for a while, that you're actually getting blood flow to your vital organs, that you're turning on left and right brain function so that with that right-hand side brain function, the, the intuitiveness and the creativity, you're at your very best for that meeting that you've flown overseas for anyway. It's obviously a critical moment. Otherwise a WebEx call would have sufficed, right? But I see so many people kind of slug their way through airports and take the people mover and take the escalator and they're not really thinking about the small little choices that add up to sustainable high performance. And if they do think about their, those choices, they're often just stuck in the well-being box. That sounds a bit like marginal gains theory in cycling and other sports. Oh, 100%. So if you look at Team Sky, right, the, the aggregation of marginal gains, it's a term that we've used a lot. You know, they had 77, I think, different strategies that they used or 55 or whatever that these athletes, that these cyclists would use. One of them being like, let's make sure that our exercise physiologist travels to the hotel that they're staying at that night before them and cleans the room. They can't get sick. Let's make sure that they have the right pillow because if you have the best cyclist in the world and that best cyclist in the world gets a good sleep, his chances of winning the next day go right up. It's not because of the well-being. It's for the yellow jersey. It's for the performance. Um, so, yeah, 100%. Great anal analogy. So if people who have been listening for a little while, they'll remember my conversation recently with Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, who won the Nobel Prize in 2012 in chemistry. And he was talking about failure in science. And he said, if you are going for big enough goals, then you will fail more as a scientist. 
And he said scientists expect to, for 99 out of 100 of, of their experiments to fail. And he said, if I am seeing too high a success rate, then I feel like I'm not asking big enough questions. In the sports world, you know, people are obviously trying to win, but as you build your career from a kid up to, you know, a semi-professional, professional sports person, you get very good at losing. How, how do you translate the, the experience of how to handle failure from the sports world into the executive world? Yeah, it's a super, a super good question, and it's really topical right now. We're doing a lot of um, different deep dives with teams on this idea of, like, authentic self-belief. And it's not that it comes from an absence of self-doubt. The high performers have self-doubt because they have a lot of failures, but they always come back to this idea of what can I learn and what can I apply next time, right? They also know that a lot of things are outside of their control. If I look at cricket and maybe even any sport, I think why a lot of athletes when they retire do succeed in the business world is because they find it easier. You know, I think you touched on this earlier. In the sporting world, I can be as prepared as I wanted to be and I can step onto that cricket pitch. Now I could edge that first ball. I'm going to lose a lot of listeners here that don't understand the, understand the game of cricket. But it was, it was kind of by chance, right? I was actually closer to the ball than someone that missed it. So who's the better, who's the better player? Um, probably the person that, that edged it. So, and then I'm out. And I've got the rest of the day to think about it. I've got the rest of the day to reflect on it. Where in business... Things are undoubtedly outside of our control, especially right now with what we're seeing in the, in the world. But I think I've got more control over the outcomes. So what we do at Tignum is build a performance mindset to help people really be able to reframe quickly from those failures. I remember I worked with a pharmaceutical company that had a phase three, uh, you know, phase three trial failure. This drug was going to be the next big blockbuster. Phase one, excellent results. Phase two, great know the shareholders are getting excited that type of thing phase three no different to a placebo it was a quite a challenging time you know this team had worked on this particular product for 10 years the best kind of years of their career and they thought they could have thought that it was all for nothing all for naught the way they were able to do this mindset shift of this was wasn't without purpose you know we're going to learn from this we're going to take these learnings into every single other drug we develop uh, we're going to also share these results. We're going to share this failure. We're not going to hide it away. We're going to build trust and credibility in the robustness of our testing, in the robustness of the system. We're going to build trust and credibility in the medical and scientific communities. Like that was just such a high performance way of handling failure, which I think is a skill that we can learn and a skill, this, this idea of reframing and mindset shifting. If we're going to need to be adaptable and innovative, I think some things just aren't going to work. Some things aren't going to stick and we better get good at reframing. I like that. Can anyone achieve super high performance or do you think it takes certain traits or a certain mindset that some people just don't possess? Great. Yeah, again, great question. You've got all the good questions here. Look, I, I would say that everyone can maximize their personal readiness to be better at what they do. Now, whether or not you're going to ultimately be a super high performer in your craft comes down to the impact that you'll have, which, and, and I think if, if I could paint a performance equation for you, it would be this. It would be that impact equals functional readiness. You know, do you have the right credentials to be great at your function? Most executives that we work with have that in spades, right? 
plus role readiness? Have I got the experience in the role? Do I have the, the business acumen, maybe the company acumen, the company intelligence to handle the role? But then the key multiplier that we touch on, and I mentioned it before, is this idea of personal readiness. So I think everyone can look at that. But the functional side, like, am I going to be a great ballroom dancer? Uh, my wife would really argue that I, that I will never be a great ballroom dancer. You talk about the Tignum, this idea of, am I in an extreme job? That I found really interesting. Talk to me about what you think of as an extreme job. We're seeing a lot of this right now, like this idea of like just executives that have high load, high pressure, constant pressure. And maybe they own the P&L. Maybe they have a large team that's responsible. Maybe they're working in a, a very transformative side of their business that's constantly disrupted. And we would classify that as an, as an extreme job. You know, this idea of being able to handle all the things that are coming your way in this world of uncertainty, I think is, is it's really challenging right now. So we like to make people with extreme job, jobs stronger. You know, what do we mean by stronger? It means, like I mentioned before, more mentally agile, um, that performance resilience, more adaptable. Um, I love, I don't know if you've seen the documentary 14 Peaks, and it's, uh, it follows a British Gurkha, Nims, Nimsai Persia, and it's on Netflix. It's a great documentary for, for the listeners to, to go and find. And Nimsai climbs the 14 highest peaks in the world, all above 8,000 metres. He does it in, I think, six, eight months, something like that. It had previously only been done in 16 years. Now, to that person's defence, I don't think he was trying to break records. He was just trying to climb the eight. But Nimsai does it in, let's say, eight months. And he makes a comment that it's not the super fit people that he wants to go with him in his team, in his expedition. He says those people scare him because they don't know when to get stressed and when to recover. He says the mountain will make you strong, right? Our challenges will make us stronger. But I need people that know their limits. I need people that can push hard and then come back to base camp. I need people that can push a little bit further, get a little bit stronger through their load, through their stress, through their intensity, and then recover. And our message to people with extreme jobs is exactly that. What if you could win your bold projects but come out of that bold project 10% stronger? There's no human endeavor, and you'd know this from sport, where load and pressure, when coupled with um, performance recovery, whether it be physical, cognitive, emotional, don't actually make us stronger. Somewhere in the world of work, we just think that load and intensity and stress makes us more fragile. And again, we want to challenge that. That's really interesting. I really like the way you frame that. What do you think is the future of high-performance coaching? Are we all going to be talking to a chatbot in three years' time to get us to peak performance? Yeah, great. I, I, you know, we just did a blog on this ourselves, a thought cast, sorry. Um, and this idea of you know, chat GPT, it, it's really fascinating. And I think I mentioned on the thought cast that we did that if this is chat GPT3 that we're dealing with right now, you, know, can you, only, you, you can only imagine what it's going to be like when it's version 30, version 60, or what have you. But I think that it's not that we're short on information for the last 20 years, we haven't been short on information about high performance. It's actually been, we're short on context and we're short on how to do it. The people that come to a Tignum workshop, they've all read the latest HBR article on sleep and leadership. They've all read the latest McKinsey study on, on leadership or performance or whatever. 
they're not short on information. They're short on a framework that really works for them. That's a very usable mental model, if you will. And that's what we do really well. You know, how do you transition between your calls, between the critical moments so that you show up at your best? What mindset skills could you use? What performance recovery skills could you use? And how do I go in and have clear intentions so that my brain knows, my brain feels like it's in control. My brain knows what I want from it, right? What do I want this person to know? How do I want them to feel? How would I like to be perceived in this particular event? When I ask myself those three questions, I get a very clear picture of what success looks like. So what I'm trying to say here is that it's nuanced. And I think ChatGPT and AI are nowhere near being able to radically contextualize performance content for very busy people that have very different circumstances. When you think back to all those different people that you've worked with with this model, is there anybody that stands out where you think maybe that's the most impact we've ever had with someone going through this process? Who comes to mind when you think about the biggest impact that you've had with this approach? Oh, it, it would be hard to only give you one. You know, we, we're able to work with such amazing, talented executives doing incredibly interesting things. Um, I guess one that comes to mind, Dave Lennon, uh, former CEO of Avexis. Avexis came in under uh, Novartis now, uh, Novartis Gene Therapies. But when I started coaching uh, Dave, he was a Novartis executive uh, in oncology in Japan. And we worked with his team. And through that transition to him becoming CEO, CEO of Avexis, uh, which is just an amazing, uh, an amazing drug, you know, it works on spinal muscular atrophy. So we're taking children that probably will die by their, by their teenage years and giving them treatment as early as possible straight after birth, one dose, and it, and it fixes that. Um, to be able to help Dave achieve his goals and help his team achieve their goals, I think is a memory that is, is going to stay with me forever. Um, I think also about the work that we've done with Special Forces or with the Oakland Raiders. We worked with the Oakland Raiders, uh, the NFL team, their coaching staff. But if I think to special forces, you might think, how can we share executive high performance strategies for these elite military operators, you know, these fearless kind of warriors? Well, often they were fine when they were deployed. When they were downrange, they knew what success looked like. It was pretty evident, right? It was kind of black or white. But when they got home, they would find themselves getting frustrated about fitting back into civilian life. Maybe their kids and their family had learned to thrive and survive without them in the picture. And that was hard for them to, to swallow. You know, the first day was, of course, the great tarmac scenes that we see, the, 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 reu the reuniting in the, with the family. But by day five, they just want to go down to the bar and have a beer with their work buddies and tell work stories. Why? Because their self-image was strong in that environment. We worked with them to create a strong self-image as a father, as a brother, as a mother, whatever their life roles were away from the military, away from being a soldier. and. We've been able to carry over that kind of message with the executives that we work with. What does it look like for you to be off? What does it look like for you to walk in the door and even use some of our principles and our strategies to have an impact at home, right? I think we've all got off a long flight, walked in the door, lugging our suitcase, and that first five minutes has gone awry. We may have even been stuck on a phone call still. What an opportunity missed to go in there and actually give energy to the ones that you love the most. I really love how that brings it to life. So 
if someone's listening to this podcast and you could give them one thing to go and do differently or start to think differently on this journey to sustainable high performance, what's something that people can go away and think about in their own lives, in, in their own work? Well, I think it goes with the title of your podcast, right? The, the Unlock Moment. I, I think it would be that identify, start to scan your calendar and identify your critical moments. I know often you speak about the moment that unlocked your, your career, but if I can change that just slightly, scan your calendar for clear moments where if you were 5 to 10% sharper in that moment, you'd drive more impact. And just start using performance strategies before those events. So getting clear on what does success look like, right? Getting really clear, giving the brain a clear idea of success, maybe even visualizing. I'm sure back in the ballroom days, you would have visualized your steps. You would have even maybe heard your feet on the parquetry floor. You turn on mental imagery and you feel like you've done it already. So what does that give you? Your brain felt like it had control of a situation that was coming. Your performance anxiety probably went down. You felt better about what was coming. Your, ner your, your performance nervousness might have gone down. So I would say start using some of those things. Um, even when you look at nutrition, again, it's not well-being. It's not about drinking more water and eating more nuts for our well-being's sake. It's actually about what food is going to help me feel and perform at my best at this critical moment. And then I would have a guess that if they are a, a high performer already, that they'll have so many of these critical moments on their calendar throughout their week you know, athletes have it easy. We might have one a weekend. A lot of executives have three per day. That you'll have so many of these critical moments scattered throughout your calendar each week that you'll naturally change behaviours, that behavioural change will become a lot more effortless and you won't need the willpower and the discipline that we often hear about when it comes to behavioural change. We challenge that. We think it's actually about choices that move you towards being a sustainable human performer. That's fantastic. And I love how you're turning that into really, really practical steps that people can take. How can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, either LinkedIn, you know, looking at myself, Chris Miles up on LinkedIn or, or going to uh, our website, tignum.com, T-I-G-N-U-M.com. Uh, we also have this Thoughtcast, a, a podcast of our own where we talk about sustainable human performance. Uh, we also have some books and things on that as well. So now I'd love to stay in touch. But yeah, look, thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For performance coach Chris Mayles, it was transferring the high performance mindset and skill set from the cricket pitch to the business world to achieve sustainable high performance. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. My pleasure, Gary. Thanks for having me. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.